First Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. First Peter chapter two, verses eleven and twelve. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we ask that you would help us to receive and hear it. We pray, O God, that you would help us to inwardly digest what we hear uh, and to leave changed, being conformed to the word of God and to the image of Jesus Christ, transformed by the word of God. We ask, Lord, this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we come to a particular passage, we are always concerned about context. It's it's like that real estate thing, uh, mantra, location, location, location. When you come to Scripture, it's always about context, context, context. And sometimes people will extrapolate a verse and make up a, a tremendous theological conviction over that one verse, ignoring the larger context of a letter, an epistle, uh, a, a particular narrative, and we have to be careful not to do that. So in its immediate context, verses 11 and 12, Come to us, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. It's an interesting statement. It's the very first ethical exor- exhortation, the very first moral imperative that Peter gives to the church. Now you would think in the church, we don't need to hear such things. You'd think within the church, we don't need to be warned about worldliness. We don't need to be warned about fleshly lusts, passions of our flesh. But we do. Indeed, we do. Because Christians are tempted by sinful sexual practices. Christians of every stripe, Christians of every color and creed, Christians from every walk and background of life. We are tempted, and Satan knows how to tempt us. Even if we consider ourselves to be beyond temptation, we will find a day will come when Satan will press the buttons that we he so well knows about ourselves that we tend to ignore, frankly. Verse 9 and 10 are verses from last week, commanded that we, as, as Christians living in the world, and of course Peter is answering that big question, how are Christians supposed to live within the diaspora? The diaspora is simply the word of being scattered throughout the world. It's, it's an academic term overused today. You'll hear, you can read all sorts of interesting books as a bookseller. Uh, You can read all sorts of interesting books. The Diaspora of Feminism, the Diaspora of, you know, Gender. It's an overused word, but it's a very biblical word in the sense that believers are scattered throughout the world. And how in our scattered contexts, varied uh, all over the world and all over the place in various cultures and various 
contexts of family relationships and antagonism and of persecution, of freedoms, of imprisonment, uh, whatever context you may come from, how are you supposed to live as a Christian in the world? That's the, that's the question. And Peter, first moral imperative is abstain from fleshly lusts. Well, he's answering the question that, or the, 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 he's, he's, he's providing an answer to what we might have as a corresponding question to what he has stated in verse 9 and 10. He has told us who we are. You are a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And then he has explicitly stated, he has, he has revealed our identity as Christian people, and then he explicitly revealed what our, our moral imperative, as it were, as Christians is, so that this is our reason, this is our purpose, this is the reason why God has saved us, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, right then, maybe you've left with a question last week and you went home and you had conversation over the lunch table with your, the people who live in your home or with other friends over mutual uh, table fellowship. And you said, you know, I love that verse. I love that identity. I understand my purpose. But how can I fulfill that purpose? I understand my purpose is to proclaim the excellency of my God. But how can I do that? And Peter's very simple response is, abstain from that which is immoral. We, we, we overcomplicate sometimes the Christian life, don't we? Sometimes we deeply overcomplicate. We look for meaning and purpose in all sorts of things when really the Spirit of God testifies in the Word of God, abstain from immorality. If you want to display that you're a Christian in the world, if you want others to see the testimony that your life would proclaim the excellence of your God, abstain from immorality. Do not give free reign to your, your, your inner demons, moral passions, immoral passions, fleshly lusts, and so Peter is answering that question, how am I supposed to live for a believer in the world? How can I proclaim the excellence of God? By not engaging in what the world engages in. And we live in such a time where we need to hear this word. The church, in the broad sense of the term, has lost its salt and savor. Because what it's doing is it's telling people broken by immoral practices of sexual indulgence, the church is saying, no, God loves you precisely as you are. He accepts you in your current moral condition. He does not in any way press a moral imperative upon you. He's not calling for you to be different. He doesn't want you to be like himself. Just be you. Of course, that's not what the Bible teaches. And over those churches, God proclaims Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. They may fill the pews, but to be frank, there is no power. There is no life. The word of God commands and calls the church to proclaim that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts and thus proclaim the excellence of God. 
You do that as you as you say, this is better for my soul, and this is a greater savor to me, and I love this far more than my own fleshly passions and lusts. This is precisely how we exclaim and show the excellence of the one who has saved us and called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, the most powerful witness to the glory of God and the excellence of him who has called us is a godly life. It's a godly life. You, we often look for significance in extraordinary things, but there is nothing more extraordinary than a godly life. And God has promised to do so much more through a godly life. It's not through more words. It's not through excellence of speech. It's not through, in fact, Peter or Paul will say multiple times, I didn't come to you with power of speech through various epistles to the churches that he served. I didn't come to you with power of speech. I didn't come to you with earthly wisdom. I came to you proclaiming the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And you saw the display of God's power in my weakness. Now, we're not talking about a perfect life. We're not buying into this idea that believers can achieve a level of perfection in our world. No, we cannot. We're talking about Christians, sinners still sinning, who are sanctified increasingly day by day into and, and being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ or transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about perfection, but growing, building, increasing holiness. And maybe this morning you need to ask the question, am I growing in personal holiness? Is there a building up of personal holiness in my life? If this cannot be observed, if you cannot honestly see this, then what can you do? Well, you, you, you come to Christ, you, you turn to Jesus Lord Jesus, and, and confess, Lord Jesus, I have often made bargains with myself. I have often embraced my own fleshly passions, but I see the worthlessness of it all, and I want you more than that. Now begin from that point forward, and depending on with utter grace upon the Lord Jesus Christ, with true and genuine faith in him, with true and genuine process of repentance, come to Christ and live for him in this world. Perhaps we've never really thought about holiness and whether or not it's building and growing in us. Perhaps we've never really thought about holiness in, in, in this way in which it's described in this passage. Uh, Peter actually says it's warfare. Warfare. Well, the, profs, the process of sanctification is warfare. And so he has left us with this command, and he is displaying in verses 11 and 12 how to go about doing it. If we would proclaim the excellence of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, verse 10, this is how you do it. Verse 11, this is how you do it. And he gives us that in two different ways, two conclusions basically about holiness. First of which is holiness is warfare. We've already said it. We need to affirm that. We need to understand that. Two, holiness is our testimony. Holiness is warfare, and secondly, holiness is our testimony. First, holiness is warfare. 
In, the, in a wonderful chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith, you have it in the back of your hymnals. You, you, you have it freely available online. It's, it's, a, it's a comprehensive declaration of what we as Christians, uh, biblical and reformed believers, believe. Explicitly stated, along with scripture proofs as to why uh, nothing is affirmed there, as, as I believe in any way, um, that is not in some way clarified in scripture. It's a compendium of scriptural theology. But it says this in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13. And I would commend chapter 13 to you if you want to understand the process of sanctification, be encouraged deeply in your walk with God. Uh, I encourage you to do it devotionally. But, but nonetheless, it says this, very brief. Sanctification is throughout in the whole man or person, yet imperfect in this life. In other words, your being sanctified in totality as an individual from head to toe, body and soul, and yet it is going to be imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war. From the moment you're born to the moment you die, an irreconcilable and continual war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This is true, and so the Apostle Peter says, hold back in verse 11. He says, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain. The word is apeko. It means continual action of holding back. It it doesn't mean just once walking away and saying, no, I'm not going to do it today. It means a continual daily holding back, refusing to engage. Well, from what? Well, uh, Peter answers that too later on in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it says this, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And dear friends, so too will you, and so too will I. Now, you might say, well, I... (laughs) I don't run around in carousing. I, I, I don't go to drunken parties. In fact, you may even say, well, I, I don't even drink. Well, that's, that's good. That's a beginning. But, you know, there's, there's much, much more. There are drinking parties. There's raves. There's bars. There's private indulgences to the points of drunkenness. There, uh, there have been children over the years in this congregation many years ago who would say, that, who knew with full understanding that their fathers got drunk in the home regularly. But it's much more than that, isn't it? There is the constant use of pornography. There is the embrace of pornography on telephones and and computers and everywhere and anywhere that you possibly can see it. There are private books. There are book sales. There are are magazines in every form. But Peter is speaking to this generation of believers, and his word still speaks to us that in the privacy of what other people do not see, when others are not looking, there is a God who judges and who sees. More than that, 
everyone around you is watching. And don't think that your private excess of sin will not in some way manifest itself publicly. It will. Be sure your sins will find you out. I think the worst part of it all is, is that we we privately indulge in the risque, we gawk at the suggestive, we play at the edges of sin comfortably. This too is in violation of God's word. You cannot play with sin. You cannot entertain sin in your heart. You and I, we cannot engage in the indulgence of our passions, even in the process of our own mind, even if we never physically engage in sin, if we commit it in our minds, we are guilty of it. Jesus clarified that. He was a man, if you look with lust at a woman, and vice versa, you've committed adultery, you've broken the commandment of God. Jesus clarified that sin is a matter of the heart and of mind and of thought processes not just the physical act. Galatians clarifies even more, just a bit more, as to exactly what this sin, these passions look like uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, lest we think that we are somehow free from uh, saying that, uh, yes, I'm guilty of these things. Uh, Galatians makes it even harder to say that. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition. There's that word. It is warfare, isn't it? These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things which you please. That's a scary statement. As a Christian, I still please or have the pleasure of or desire sin. Yes, indeed. We'll see that clarified in just a moment. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Holiness is warfare. And Peter gives us two quick motivations here to abstain. He gives us an identity, and he teaches us that this is a conflict. He says, look, I urge you, I beg you. That's the language explicitly. In our translations, we lose a sense of that explicit, I beg you, and he is. I beg you as aliens and strangers. He's reminding us, you don't belong in this world. You don't belong here, so why if you belong here do you engage in what is foreign to your identity? It's like if you and I were to travel to Japan today and we decided, well, what we're going to become as a male, I'm going to become a shogun warrior overnight. Put on the put on the stuff Uh, all the armor, and take up a sword, and tomorrow I'm going into battle. Or if it's uh, as a woman decides that uh, she's going to be one of those very fancy powder-covered women and has no idea where to even begin. It's a lifelong process of learning how to do this. 
And we, all of us, I think, have come from various types of cultures. We're immersed in various groups and family groups and relational groups. And it's like all of us know that in various contexts we stand out. We're different. All of us. Well, the truth is that none of us at all should identify ourselves by where we are here in this world. We take on family names. We take on cultural identifications. We take on racial identification. We take on class relating to economic advancement or, or, or lack thereof. Rich or poor, tall or thin, blonde or brown-haired, redheads versus black hair. doesn't matter. We all tend to identify and, and to take up our identity in those things. Well, there's nothing worse than what this generation currently is doing, identifying themselves by their sexual practice. It's the oddest self-identification I think the world has ever seen. And it's the word of God that comes and speaks to thirsty souls and says, you are more than your sexual identification. I think that's the word of hope that the church has for our sex-craved culture. You are far, far more, and you are worth far, far more than your sexual identification this morning. God says you are worth more than that. Well, the other motivation to abstain is simply that Peter says, Your abstinence is a matter of warfare. It's warfare. They are pilgrims and aliens. They're not space creatures. We don't belong here. That's clear. We are a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You are not like your neighbor next door. You have a dignity which God has given to you. You have a class which God has given and parted to you. You have far more dignity and class and stature and standing through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Through God's electing love, you belong to him. Don't be prideful in that. It's according to God's will. But nonetheless, you are worth so much more than fleshly indulgence and identification in sin. That's why it's such a misnomer to say, I'm, I'm a gay Christian. Or to identify yourself by some other sin. No, you're a child of God if you're truly fe- trusting in Jesus Christ. If you're truly trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have faith in him, you're turning away from sin, you're repenting of various sins like all the rest of us. How can you identify yourself by your former walk and way of life? By the former indulgence of your flesh. No, you're a stranger and an alien. You're a child of God, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. This is your new identity. Don't step outside of that identity. Don't take some other identity up. This is what you are, biblically. But if you say, well, I'm something more, then, well, maybe you have not embraced truly what the word of God says you are. Well, sin is powerful. There is a constant conflict between conflicting desires for godliness or for the world. 
Let me ask you this in very simple terms. What dominates in your thinking? Passion for the world or passion for God? Which one? What dominates your life? The passions of your flesh and your indulgence of them or your passion for God and your commitment to live in a godly way? What dominates in your life? What, what holds the greatest weight? The truth is that love of the world and love and desire and passion for godliness are in constant conflict. Sin is powerful. There is an inherent mischief about it. There is a sinfulness to sin. There is an active power employed by Satan always against your soul. His intent is to destroy you altogether. He will never let up. He is malevolent. He knows how to press your buttons. He knows what appeals to you. He knows what you're thinking. Well, all of these things wage war against your soul. And the word is stratuo. It's it's to strategize. It's to carry on a campaign. And it is a campaign that will never come to an end in this world. Don't surrender. Don't ever grow tired of the conflict. The battle is for your soul. We reject that our identities flow from our sins. Our sins are our enemies. Our heart and our souls, they are the place of a solemn battle. And your eternal destiny weighs in the balance. If you are a child of God, it does not weigh in the balance. Let me clarify that very, very carefully. If you're a child of God, no power of hell can ever overtake you. You may be influenced at times by the world. You may, you may fall. You may, you may temporarily fall into sin. You may engage in sinful practices for a season. But if you're truly a child of God, he will cause you to, to have unrest in your soul. And the Spirit of God will bring you to repentance and help you to see your sinfulness. But truly, this is an issue of the soul. Let me ask you, as Peter outlines these things in verse 11 and 12, follow me as I read and ask this question. Who is the enemy outlined in this particular passage? We know that the world is opposed to us. We know that Satan is opposed to us. We know men and women, people around us are opposed to us as Christians. But what does he identify here? Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. What's the enemy? Well, in that classic phrase, I've seen the enemy. The enemy is us. G.K. Chesterton once wrote in response to the London newspaper essay question, the question was, what's wrong with the world today? And he wrote back, dear sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Jesus in Matthew 15:10 says it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness slander these are what defile a person when you engage in sin don't say for a moment that's not me one young basketball player yesterday who who had won and is going to the final championship game, gave an interview, and I read the interview, I happened to, and <clears throat> she said that she had come from a difficult background where she had attacked another woman, she had uh, been, been 
uh, indicted, I guess, or, or, or charged with uh, the crime of of, uh, of uh, assault. And she she was saying in that classic human response to sin, well, they, you can see that that wasn't me. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Indeed, it was. And so what you need to hold up is, I did do that, but I'm convicted it was wrong. God has changed my heart. Well, Peter is begging them and he's telling them this is warfare and you need to engage in that warfare because your soul, your life, eternal life is before you. And so prove out that you are a child of God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Engage in the warfare and take up the weapons of warfare identified in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Hold the shield of faith. But if you won't do those things, if you won't abstain from the fleshly lusts within yourself, Maybe the answer this morning is that you're not yet a believer and what you need to do is finally and truly close with Christ, believe and be saved, repent and turn away from those sins and take up that warfare. The second thing we see in this passage is holiness is not only warfare, but holiness is our testimony. Your personal holiness is your testimony. Some of us live with unbelievers in our home. The holiness of your life preaches. When you're not saying anything, when you're laying on the couch, when you're watching television, when you're making choices, when you how you treat your spouse or your friends or the people around you, how you act in your workplace, your life preaches. According to chapter 1, verse 17, it says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Each of us must conduct our lives in godly fear, but God is not the only one who is watching. Everyone else around you is watching too, and they're looking for inconsistency. They're looking to say, Ah! Oh, He or she engaged in my own fleshly passion. I love that sin. And they did it too. That means they're not much of a Christian. Or they might respond and say, I guess I really don't need Christ. Because there's no real change. I guess I don't really, or maybe I can become a Christian because, or maybe I am a Christian already without accepting Christ because their lives haven't changed at all. Maybe you're wondering, none of my friends are coming to faith in Christ, and I'm, I want to be a soul winner, and I want to share the gospel with them. I've shared the gospel. I've handed out ta- tracts. I've done good things for them. I've invited them into my home. I've even brought them to church. Well, what does your life preach? What does your life say? Do they see the, the praise of God and the excellence of the one who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Either when the Lord returns or an unbeliever is converted, you who believes through observing the beautiful life of a Christian, however much reviled previously, one day they will praise God and say, I saw God in you. That's what it needs to be. You think about your life. Would you characterize it with the word beautiful? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful life. 
Well, Peter uses that word. He says keep, hold, seize, possess. And he says, <clears throat> abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent. That word is beautiful. Beautiful. Is your behavior in the world beautiful? Imperfect. We are sinners. We will sin against the Lord. But do when, when people look at us, do they see men and women, boys and girls, who intend with every thought of their heart that they would beautify God and present themselves in the beauty of a life changed and transformed by the grace of God? Yes, a life which sometimes need from our mouths to confess our sins and say, I've offended you, I've hurt you. I said something I shouldn't have said. It's not that they will see perfection in us, but godliness. And godliness includes repentance and faith. Or do they really rather catch us as people who love to gossip, who love to drink, drink to excess, who swear, Drop words that we shouldn't drop. His conduct in life, his words differ no measurable way at all from the world around us. Well, that's why they're not coming to church with you, dear friend. That's why when you tell them about the gospel and the need to turn to Jesus Christ in order to be saved, they really don't say much, but they're thinking it. Why? Why do I need to be saved? To be just like this person? I'm already like that. There's no transformed life. There's no benefit here that I can see. Christians, I think, underutilize and misunderstand and undervalue the power of a godly life. You want to you want to see your brothers and sisters? You want to see your family members converted? You want to see people, your wife, your husband, you want to see people around you converted, live a godly life. When you receive money in, in the line at, at work or what, at the grocery store and you're paying for groceries and you get somebody hands you an extra $5 bill, return it to them if you're conscious of it. And tell them why. I wanted to bring this $5 back because I love God and God will not let me in my conscience keep that money. And I want you, I want me to glorify God. I just want to honor and obey God. And so here, this is $5. I have no right to it. And when your wife or husband who's not a believer comes and says, you know, let's engage in this particular behavior and you know it's ungodly and it's not something you should be doing. And so you say to her, you say to him, no, I'm a Christian first and foremost. My identity as a believer is even more valuable to me than my identity to you as a spouse. Didn't Jesus say that? You must hate your mother. You must hate your father. You must hate your brother and sister. He's not saying that we should be hateful beings, but he's saying that we must so love Jesus Christ, we're willing to submit to his law, his will, to live for Him to such a degree that nothing else can in any way impede our love for and our commitment to live for Him in this world. And that we love Him more than anything else. 
He's our first place of identity and of purpose and of reason for living. He's everything. Human beings, we we learn by observation and illustration and pictures. Our dear friend, Dr. Douglas Vickers, used to love to say, we are analogs of God. We are analogs of God. And he's right. We are an analogical picture of God. We are offering to the world. God is offering to the world continually through the lives of people transformed by grace. This is what I offer this world. This is what Christ has done. This is the image of my beloved Son in this world, in the church, in the lives of transformed believers. We are the we are the continual illustration of God. Now, maybe you wonder about that, but let me take you to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13 through 16, it says this, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify, not you, but your Father who is in heaven. That's God's intention for a life of principled obedience. That's God's intention for you and for me as we engage in the warfare of holiness and as we allow the witness of holiness to to shine its light out, out, out from us. So what are people observing in your life this morning? What do they look at? What do they see when they look at your life? Is your life an analog of the excellence of your God? Or is it a mere reflection of their own worldliness? Your life matters, dear friend. Your life matters. Your personal, private expressions of holiness matter in this world. Your life matters with regard to your witness. Your life matters with regard to the state of your soul because in truth, your fleshly lusts are waging war continually against your soul. May God help us so that we, we would glorify Him in the life, in our lives, as men and women, boys and girls, who love the Lord more than any other thing, so that we would engage in that warfare against our sins and our fleshly lusts. Parents, teach your children to deny fleshly lusts, passions of the flesh, and to live for the principles of God and His Word. The key to the Christian life, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Key to the Christian life, let the word of God so shine in you that you glorify your Father in heaven. May God enable us to do, to engage, to shine forth the word, the excellence of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray.